0: Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. So good morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be back. Um, And greetings to you all from Kansas City, the new hometown of Taylor Swift. And also, Patrick Mahomes, who came from Chandler, Texas, has brought with him over a dozen Whataburgers. So he, he, he imported his favorite fast food restaurant. So the town's changing, um, but it's good to be here in uh, Granville. So this morning's message, um, it's a bit unconventional, and I, I'm not always the best at choosing titles, But the title of this morning's message is Apocalyptic Evangelism. So kind of an unusual term. But essentially what I mean by that is this. Is um, you've really got two uh, sort of opposite um, disciplines, if you will. You have apologetics and then you have polemics. Okay, polemics is when, for example you're dismantling or deconstructing or demonstrating the weaknesses of some particular philosophy or religion. So let's say there's a debate between, whatever, a Catholic and a Protestant or, a, you know, a Christian and a Hindu. And they're both going to pull out their, their uh, polemics to sort of try to discredit the other one or this sort of thing. But then you have apologetics. Apologetics is when you're defending the faith. You're putting out the positive reasons not only to believe the faith, but if you will, the validity and the authority of this book. And so there's some amazing apologists out there, this sort of their specialty. Um, I think of men like Frank Turek and I mean, there's so many others that are excellent. But when you sort of analyze their methodology, most often they're focusing on logic and various arguments and philosophy or, you know, they'll get into history Um, You've got some guys that really specialize in creationism, which is fun. I always enjoy um, those discussions. But when you carefully analyze the methodology that the apostles used, that John the Baptist, that Jesus used, when you analyze the messianic or the apostolic apologetic, how did they defend the faith? overwhelmingly, there's really two main tools that they used over and over again. The first is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not what this message is about at all, but I have to highlight. I can't just move on to the second part. Overwhelmingly, the primary way that Jesus and the apostles validated their message was by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see examples of it, obviously, throughout the Gospels, but in the book of Acts, right? Silver and gold have I none but what I do have, I give to you freely. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Miracles happened and people go, oh, okay. So what you're saying is valid and true. There's nothing more powerful than sort of a wink or a kiss from heaven that says, yep, I'm standing behind this guy. When you look at the Jesus movement, which is unarguably the most single greatest revival in recent American history, I always have to do this, but how many people in the room got saved during the Jesus movement? There's gotta be this, this woman right here. I see that hand, ma'am, thank you. <laughs> but if not, if you didn't get saved during the, how many people saw the film, The Jesus Revolution, right? That was awesome. Even my kids liked it. Um, even my kids were like, that was a good Christian movie. I think they liked the hippie parts better than anyway, but that's beside the point. But the single greatest revival in recent American history, and overwhelmingly, if you really analyze it, why was everyone getting saved? They were getting saved for two reasons. One, because the Holy Spirit was moving. And Lord, we need a move of the Holy Spirit. We need you to visit us. We need you desperately. But second, beyond just the activity of the Holy Spirit, it's this, and you'll see this throughout the book of Acts. This, which you've just witnessed, that which you see unfolding in the news, on the earth, on the ground right now, they go, this was in order to fulfill the words of the prophets. They would say, this is to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet, or Jeremiah, or this or that. When you analyze the, the sermon of Stephen, or Paul, or Peter, any of these, they're constantly pointing to the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And so when I say apocalyptic evangelism, this is what I mean. If you analyze the, the tools that apologists use, they almost never, talking to unbelievers or skeptics or Christians that are sort of on the fence or struggling, very rarely do people open up the Bible and say, guys, look at what the prophet said. Look out at the earth right now. And how can you tell me that this stuff is just made up? So the ability of learning how to responsibly articulate what the prophet said as proof of the fact that the rest of this book is true, it's one of the most underutilized, forgotten tools at our disposal. We don't know how, we, we don't know how to use biblical prophecy, and yet that's what Jesus used. That's what the apostles used. So I want to jump right in and look at... Um, some of the more foundational concepts in the Bible that most Christians, quite frankly, are not even familiar with. Um, And talk about how Israel as a people and their story in so many ways validates and proves the testimony of the Bible, the testimony of the God of Israel. The people of Israel validate the words of the God of Israel in a profound, profound way. So I'm gonna start out in... Leviticus, when's the last time that pastor preached a message from Leviticus? Just curiously. When's, let, I, won't, I won't put it on the pastor. How many here in the room really just study Leviticus a lot? Like it's like your book. Ma'am? No? Um, it's like as Christians, we don't spend a lot of time in Moses. But the bottom line is the books of Moses, this is the, foundational, this is the foundation for the entire biblical narrative. I was in construction for 20 years, guys. Let me say something. You don't build the roof first. You lay the foundation first. And you don't get to the roof until later. The New Testament, the book of Revelation, all that stuff, it comes last for a reason. Okay, so before we jump into the scriptures, I wanna, I've to i got a chart here that I threw together. It's just sort of a basic cycle. And you've seen these types of charts have been created Uh, to talk about all different kinds of things, you know, the life cycle of empires. Um, Some different politically oriented folks have sort of made charts like this to warn concerning where we are as a nation. You know, you start out with the people who yearn for freedom and liberty, and then they find it, they claim it, they attain it, and then eventually they begin depending on government more and more and more, and eventually the whole system collapses, You can kind of see where we are in the whole system. And after the system collapses, people learn what it's like to be oppressed. They learn what it's like to be beholden to the government and et cetera. And they fight for and they attain freedom again. And the cycle continues. It's essentially a circular, it's a cycle. So what I've got here is the what I call the chastisement cycle. And I'm talking about something that the Lord lays out very clearly um, in the Scriptures, and he lays out this cycle very clearly. And it's, it's concerning the issue of the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. So this is the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai through Moses. When he gave Israel Torah, he gave them the law. And by the way, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai was a betrothal covenant, similar to a marriage covenant, God entered into covenant with them and Torah, for what it's worth, the law is essentially the wedding vows. That's really what it is, the wedding vows. Today, when we get married, we get up, we do the marriage vows, we kind of say things like, um, you know, like, I promise to be your anchor in the storm and, you know, your rock in the, you know, it's conceptual and it's romantic and it's flowery and all that kind of stuff. But more often than not, in the Old Testament, the marriage vows were essentially a legally binding agreement. And so it was like, I agree. And the the families would meet together. I agree, I will pick up my socks off the floor. I will not leave the toilet seat up. And if I fail to do these things, by the way, the punishment is death. (laughs) Like, that's Torah, okay? It's a list of legally binding agreements. But let me just add to that. You also don't, like, you know, five years into the marriage, the husband doesn't go, you mean you expect me to keep the wedding vows? You know, because that's kind of how we as Christians relate to Torah. We're just like, Torah's all bad. But it's like actually something that's quite beautiful. We need to, now look, we're not as Gentiles. We're not obligated, you know, I can eat bacon, all right? Keep your hands off my bacon. I just want to be very clear. Acts 15 makes that clear. But the point is this. The point is this. It is something of beauty. It's not something to be looked down negatively on. Okay, so with that said, let's go ahead and look at just an introduction to the blessings of the covenant. Now, you're dealing with it. Ancient Israel, of course, was largely an agrarian farming type of culture, society. And so... Most of the blessings are things that would be a blessing to a agrarian culture, society. Leviticus 26, verse three through five. The Lord said, if. Now notice that it is a conditional agreement. If you do this, then I will do this. It was a bilateral agreement between two parties, a covenant between God and Israel. The Lord said, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, So to actually do them, not simply believe them, but to actually live them out and do them. If you, then I. Then I shall give you rains in their season so the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Thus you will eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. So it deals with the blessings of the crops and security. You'll have peace with your neighbors, You'll have security, your crops will be blessed, you'll eat, you'll thrive, you'll be blessed. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. These principles hold true for us as Christians today. If we obey God, if we are careful to listen to his Holy Spirit, he will bless us. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't have persecution. It doesn't mean we won't have trials. It doesn't mean we won't have difficulties. It doesn't mean we won't have pain. But the Lord will bless us if we are obedient. And then you have the curses of the covenant. Now, if you notice in the chart, I said chastisements. The reason I use a different word is because most translations say curses. I don't particularly like the word curse because to me it sounds more like something that a witch or a wizard, uh, you know, I curse you. I don't, Like whatever. And I've been limping ever since that witch cursed me. I was reading this, um, this book on ultramarathons and um, Born to Run. Has anybody read Born to Run? Super cool book. But it tells the story of how ultramarathons started in the United States. And there's this tribe, the Tauramara Indians down in, in Mexico, and they call themselves the Raramuri, which means the running people. And so they're just these short, you know, sort of uh, um, indigenous peoples to Mexico. And yet they smoke all of the ultra athletes in the United States. Like they, they you know, they I'm kind of a short guy. I, uh, I have a, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do have a theory that the government secretly bred some dachshund into me somewhere along the line. And so I don't have a runner's body, long leg folks, you know. But anyway, these little short, as they out, they would smoke. So there's one story where they bring this 50 some odd year old um, Tarahumar Indian up to, to run in the Leadville 120, which is the big 120 mile marathon. And he smoked them all, but he was, he was passing this other woman named Annie. She's like this famous American ultra athlete, uh, ultra runner. And as he passed her, his knee blew out and he was convinced she was a witch. (laughs) So he kept calling her the Bruja and she was a feminist. So she hated the fact that he called it, wet. But anyway, he limped the last 40 miles of the race on one leg and he still basically came in second. Just a super cool story. I don't know why I remember that. Anyway, the point is, I don't like the word curse when we're talking about what God does to Israel. I like the word chastisement because chastisement is redemptive. Parents chastise their children because we're trying to teach them righteousness. We're trying to prevent them from suffering pain later in life and to teach them wisdom and and this sort of thing. So now we're gonna look at the chastisements of the covenant, okay? So if you obey me, you'll be blessed. Leviticus 26, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and you do not carry out these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry them out, all my commandments, so as to break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. It's a very transactional. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. So sickness, calamity. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. All of the labor of your hands, your enemies will enjoy. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you. So problems with your enemies, you'll be invaded. You'll have all of these warnings. And eventually, the Lord is very specific. I'm gonna turn to Deuteronomy. Bear with me here. These are some long passages. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24. The Lord says, for your God, the Lord your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The Lord chooses to describe Himself as an emotional being. And I take that to mean that the Lord is an emotional being. The Lord chooses to describe Himself that way because it's true. The Lord burns with emotion and passion. And more than anything, what He yearns for is relationship with His creation, with each and every one of us. He is jealous. He's jealous that we don't give ourselves over to the worship of other gods, idols, worthless gods, gods that are not gods, at times even demons. And then the Lord, through Moses, prophesies concerning what Israel would do when they get into the land. And of course, the Bible tells this story after it happened. He says, when you become the father of children and children's children, in other words, a few generations, and you've remained long in the land, So he goes, after you enter into the promised land and you've remained there and you act corruptly, you backslide. Let's just, use Christian language, you backslide and you make an idol in the form of anything to do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. So he goes, after you backslide, you'll actually start worshiping pathetic pieces of wood and you'll break my heart. As a loving husband, he says, you'll break my heart. You'll provoke him to anger. And then he uses the language of a courtroom. He goes, I call heaven and earth as my witnesses against you. That you will quickly perish in the land. So he goes, here's what's going to happen. If you don't obey me, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you will perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You won't live long on the land, but you will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. There will be few of you left in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. The majority will be killed and you'll be exiled among the Gentiles. And then he says, there you will serve their gods. Very specific. Okay, these are not just general concepts he goes you'll be invaded by your neighbors most of you will be killed there'll be few left you'll be exiled among the nations you'll turn to foreign gods these are the work of man's hands wood stone they don't see they don't hear they don't eat they don't smell but from there when your heart is broken when you come to when you come to realize your humiliated state from there you'll seek the lord your god it's always in our brokenness that we cry out to God. It's always in humility and humiliation that we start praying more. As Job, it says in the book of Job, when a man is in a heap, he stretches out his hand. It's when we're hurting that we cry out to the Lord. And the Lord says, when you have been humiliated because of your disobedience, you'll remember me. You'll remember me. And he says, when you are in distress and all these things that I have just spoken have come upon you, In the latter days, that's the last days. In the Hebrew, it's ha'achrit hayomim. And I pointed out in the first service, it literally sort of connotes like the the butt, the butt end of the days. Um, It's kind of a funny word. And as I apologized in the first service, I apologize again for patting my butt during the sermon. But you'll remember the word ha'achrit hayomim. In the last days, you will return to the Lord your God and you will listen to his voice. So he goes, you'll turn back to me. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you or destroy you completely. And I won't forget the covenant that I made with your fathers." So what he's saying here is he goes, listen, the Mosaic covenant that I made with you, here's what it is. If you don't obey me, here's what's going to happen. And he basically prophesied. He goes, you're going to go into the land. You're going to backslide. You're going to turn away from me. I'm going to Destroy you. You're going to be exiled among the nations. You'll remember me and I'll bring you back to the land because I'm not going to forget the covenant that I made before the Mosaic covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where he promised and he swore to give the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of Israel forever. So the Lord is faithful to his promises. He is always faithful to his promises. Now, what I've just laid out is something that most Christians are not familiar with, yet, as I said, it is a foundational concept of the Bible. In order to understand most of the biblical narrative, you need to understand the blessings and the curses of the covenant. Further, it is one of the greatest proofs of the reliability of this book and the prophetic value of this book. Now, we live in a day and an age when so many people are turning away from church. They're walking away. There's so many distractions. You have everything in the world to distract you. I mean, just stick a kid in a prison cell and give him TikTok, and he's fine. Give him Doritos and Mountain Dew or whatever. That's all he needs. Like, there's endless entertainment Um, the, uh, the opiate of the masses, so to speak. So many people are deconstructing, they're leaving the churches. And here's the thing, sitting here the whole time in this book is one of the clearest proofs that this book is from heaven, it's divine, it's true. It is a message from our creator calling us into this place of obedience. In the same way that the Lord called Israel to obey him in order that it would go well with them, we likewise are called to obey him in order that it would go well with us and that we would inherit eternal life and we would not be destroyed. When you look at the life of Israel as a people, it is one of the greatest proofs of the, of the Christian faith, of biblical faith imaginable. So you have the Undeniable fact that with the after King David died, just a couple generations later, Israel as a kingdom broke up. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, which is the ten tribes in the north. Then you had the two tribes in the south called Judah, the kingdom of Judah. First, you had the Assyrian invasion. They came in, they killed many of the inhabitants of the land, they dragged away those that were left as exiles among the Assyrian Empire, modern day Iran. By the way, Iran today, the second fastest growing church in the world. You know, you go, Iran? Yeah. Under the nose of the Ayatollahs and and all of the Imams and so forth, right under the nose of Satan, where the greatest existential threat to Israel in the world is coming from, Iran, the Lord is raising up his people. It's a beautiful picture. And by the way, Afghanistan is actually the fastest growing church in the world. So right under the nose of the Taliban, we could talk about all the beautiful things that the Lord is doing in the earth. I know today's message is a bit heavy, but they were exiled among the nations. Listen to me, exactly, precisely as Moses said it would happen. Then later, a hundred plus, some odd years later, might've been a couple hundred years later, you had the Babylonian invasion of the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And they came in, they destroyed most of the inhabitants, they killed most of the inhabitants, dragged them away to Babylon. We know the story, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, they were all among the exiles, exactly as Moses described. And so that was the complete expulsion, exile of Israel, according to the words of Moses. Now, here's the thing. This has never happened in the history of any nation in the history of the world where they completely were eliminated, destroyed, scattered, the few that were left scattered among the nations. And later, in the case of the Assyrian and Babylonian exile, 70 years later, exactly as Jeremiah described, they returned and they were reestablished according to the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's never happened Now, I want to say for the one or two or 10 unbelievers that maybe watch this, or maybe you're just a skeptic, or maybe you're a Christian that's on the fence, explain that to me. Explain that to me, how that was all self-fulfilled prophecy. You You can't manufacture that. And it happened exactly as Moses described. And then it happened again. After they returned to the land a few hundred years later, 70 AD, the Romans um, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and then over the next 50 years, they literally removed all of the Jews from the land of Israel during the Bar Kokhba rebellion into the second century, and they renamed Ju- Jerusalem Jupiter Capitolina, the capital uh, city of Jupiter. It was dedicated to the Roman god Jupiter. 2,000 years later, According to the words of Moses, in many of our lifetimes, 1948, Israel was reestablished as a nation. Something that has never happened before, amen, something that was, has never happened before in the history of the world, it's happened twice. The chastisement cycle happened twice, and we go, eh, this book, take it or leave it the people of Israel are, and their life and their history is one of the greatest proofs of the God of Israel. And by the way, you start all the way back there in Moses and you go, okay, if all this stuff that Moses is saying is true, then it probably means that all of this stuff that Jesus is saying is true or that Paul is saying that says, if all of the words of the prophets are accurate, then so also are the claims of our creator on our lives. Repent. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the gospel, which is also the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And repent and live for him and give your life to him. And not just believe these things, but carry these things out. Actually, live a life of faith, right? Now, I want to turn and talk about something called the controversy of Zion. It's another powerful reality that is unfolding right now on the ground in front of us in the news which validates the words of the prophets and it validates this book. And by the way, come back tonight. I'm gonna talk a lot more about events that are unfolding in the earth which validates biblical prophecy and continue to talk about standing in solidarity with Israel and the global Jewish community. It's one of the most important Calls on the people of God, on the church today, is to stand in solidarity with a people that the whole world is turning against. This is so important. So do come back tonight. So the controversy of Zion, I want to look at Isaiah 34. I'm just going to touch on it a bit. Isaiah 34 is an oracle, it's a prophecy, a judgment prophecy against the kingdom of Edom. Now, Edom was an ancient kingdom in modern-day Jordan, but in the, in the prophets, it kind of comes to refer to all of the enemies of Israel in the last days. And when you read Isaiah 34, it uses all of the classic end-time language. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll and this type of thing. And then you get to the, uh, the latter part of the prophecy, and it says this. The Lord says, my sword is satiated in heaven. In other words, what are swords swords hungry for? They're hungry for blood. My sword is satisfied. And he says, behold, it will descend for judgment upon Edom, the people I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is bathed with blood. It's satisfied with fat, the blood of lambs and goats. It uses the language like it's a sacrifice in the land of Edom. And then it says this, why? Why is the Lord judging the enemies of Israel in the last days? It says, for the Lord has a day. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord. Everything is pointing and moving toward that day. And the Lord says, it is a day of vengeance. You could also say it's a day of justice. Now, please hear me. The gospel is not simply, Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. He came and he's coming back, okay? The word Maranatha, it's a cry of the early church. It means he has come, he is coming. Jesus has come, he died on the cross and he's coming back to establish justice in the earth. The message of the gospel is that someday the God who started all of this and created all of this is coming back to fix this mess, And there's a cry rising up in the church and throughout the world for justice and the day of justice is coming. But he goes on and he says, it is a year of recompense of justice for the controversy of Zion. So according to the Bible, one of the primary reasons why Jesus is coming back is to settle the controversy of Zion. And right now, the globe is gripped by the controversy of Zion. Think of the controversy of Zion like a tropical storm. Starts out off the coast of Florida. It's They give it some name like Irma or something, you know. Two weeks later, this little tropical storm out there in the Atlantic Ocean, it's engulfed the entire east coast. People are evacuating. Everything is pulled into its orbit. The controversy of Zion surrounding this little nation the size of New Jersey, like a magnet, is pulling the entire globe into its orbit. And the Lord is allowing this controversy to test the hearts of mankind, including the church. And much of the church, by the way, has completely failed this test concerning the controversy of Zion throughout history. Now, I wanna look at Joel chapter three. Very similar, the Lord says, in the last days, the earth would be consumed with hatred for the Jewish people. So much so that they will actually gather and invade the land of Israel. Joel chapter three, the Lord says, behold, in those days and at that time, after the fact that I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, That's just Jerusalem. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is Jerusalem. And he says, there I will enter into judgment. Why will the Lord come back and enter into judgment with all the nations? I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of all of the poor Christians of the earth. It's not what it says. It says, on behalf of my people, my inheritance, Israel. So the people of Israel, God calls them his inheritance, he calls them his people, and he says he's coming back because he's gonna deal with the controversy of Zion, which is gripping the nations. Have you guys looked at the news lately, since October 7th, and seen the controversy of Zion? How did Joel, by the way, this is like 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. How did Joel know that the controversy of Zion would grip the globe. Unless the Lord was speaking through these prophets. So the Lord goes on and he says, what will the nations be guilty of? They scattered my people among the nations. Prisoners of war. They invade the land. They carry them away as exiles. They kidnap them. You can use the word kidnap. You can say prisoners of war. You can say exiles. What we saw unfold on October 7th in Israel with Hamas invading and attacking Israel and dragging many of the people off was a small foreshadow of something far worse that the prophets describe is coming that will lead to the return of Jesus. He says, they've scattered my people among the nations. They've divided up my land. You know, the United States and the US government and Britain have just announced this week that they're going to officially recognize Palestine as a nation or at least they're talking about it. Joel talked about this 3,000 years ago. They've divided up my land, and then it goes on. Human trafficking language. They've cast lots for my people. They've traded a boy for a prostitute, sold a girl for wine. It's very specific, isn't it? Verse four, the Lord says, Moreover, what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon? Where's Tyre and Sidon? It's modern day Lebanon. Who controls much of Lebanon today? Hezbollah. Controlled, it's ultimately a proxy of Iran. So Joel just was rolling the dice, randomly said, What have you against me, Hezbollah? And of course, Hezbollah's like, Whoa, whoa, God, we don't have anything against you. We just don't like the Jews. God says, no, when you touch them, you touch me. What have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia, Gaza, Hamas? The Lord pretty much, in one verse, calls out Hezbollah in the north, Hamas in the south. It's pretty specific. Joel nailed it. He says, are you, rend- are you rendering me a recompense? You think you're paying me back? If you think so swiftly and speedily will I return your recompense on your own head. In other words, I'm coming back to execute justice because what you're doing to the Jewish people is wrong. It's very simple, guys. Listen to me. We can talk theology all day long. I'm a Christian. I will die a Christian, but I'm human. And when I see other humans being attacked for no reason other than the fact that they are Jewish, being raped, kidnapped, killed, murdered, I'm gonna stand with them. I don't care if they're Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, whatever. I'm a human and we need to stand with people when they are oppressed. This is what the God of heaven does. He stands with the needy, the afflicted, the forgotten, the rejected, the hated, the marginalized. The gospel is for the poor. And we all at one time, or most of us still, me the foremost, are fools. The Lord said, thank you, God, you've chosen to reveal these things to the foolish, to the weak, to the babes, to shame that which is wise. We're a family of fools. That's what Jesus said. And we're called to stand with the weak and those that are hurting, those that are rejected. The Jewish community right now, globally, they can't, Most of them don't even understand what I talked about earlier, the chastisements of the covenant. They go, why does everyone hate us? Why throughout history has everyone hated us? And when we stand with them in their brokenness, it's so important as a testimony to say, we stand with you and we recognize the call of God on your life. But further, we can't simply as humanists stand with people, that's good to do, but ultimately, what is Israel's primary call? It's to be a light to the nations. And when we embraced Yeshua as our Messiah, we also took on the call to be a light to the nations, to be witnesses, to be ambassadors. And it's not just a matter of standing with Israel. It's a matter of standing with Israel and calling them to faithfulness to their God. In the same way that we are all ambassadors to the, everyone out there outside of the church world, to call them into the house, to call them into obedience to God in order that they could be blessed. Likewise, our job is to call Israel to faithfulness to their God and ultimately their King and their Messiah. Now, yeah, I've actually got a map. You can put up the map of Israel. I just pulled it off the internet, which means it's wrong, but (laughs) actually it is wrong. Yeah, because they have, anyway, that's beside the point. But you, you know, you get a feel in the north. Hezbollah down there in pink on the left is Gaza. How did Joel? How did Joel predict that three thousand years ago? What the events that we're seeing unfold in the earth right now? This is to fulfill the words of Joel the prophet. This is to fulfill the specifics concerning the words of Moses, who was at one point referred to as the greatest of the prophets. Going to skip forward to one of the last three slides. After October 7th, Israel was invaded. Over 1,200 plus people were murdered. A couple hundred people were kidnapped, taken as prisoners of war. People breaking bread with their families in their houses on a holy day, a holiday. Suddenly terrorists burst into their house, kill their family members, drag their kids away. The nations joined them in the streets celebrating, including many Western kids, all of our kids being brainwashed at universities. I'm not saying don't send your kids to college, but there's obviously a lot of indoctrination there. And they think they're joining the justice issue of the day. I'm going to read a quote from the very Charter of Hamas. The Charter of Hamas, the Constitution of Hamas. It says, the day of judgment, this is a prophecy that allegedly came from Muhammad. The day of judgment will not come about until the Muslims fight the Jews and kill them. Then the Jews will hide behind a rock or a tree and the rock or the tree will cry out and say, oh Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. And then it goes on and it says, Hamas exists to fulfill this divine mandate. And we have our kids joining with the various Muslims throughout the earth, marching in the streets, celebrating the massacre of October 7th, Israel's 9-11, celebrating that, thinking they're supporting some justice issue. They're standing with an organization that believes it is their divine destiny to carry out a genocide. Literally a satanic prophecy from the bowels of hell and they think it's a justice issue. Now I'm going to show you a picture and I you can put up this next picture. This is from the concert that was down there on the border of Gaza. It's called the Nova Festival or the Supernova Festival. And this is a very painful reality and it requires so many qualifications. But if you notice all of these kids, literally just normal secular Israeli kids down there at this peace concert trying to send positive vibes over the wall to Gaza, you know. We like you, we want the best for you. And then on the right, you can see them coming in on their paragliders, terrorists that many of these the majority of the kids got slaughtered. Dancing under, what are they dancing under? A statue of a Buddha. I want to be very clear, in no way, shape, or form am I saying like the Jews deserved it or this type of thing. What I am saying, however, is that if you pay attention to the words of Moses, where he says, you will turn to other gods, and then these things will happen, the words of Moses are being fulfilled in very specific ways in our day. Our job as ambassadors of Jesus, as ambassadors of the God of Israel, is to call Israel back to faithfulness to their God, back to the words of Moses and their king, Yeshua. It's not enough simply to stand as humans with Israel. We need to recognize the unfolding fulfillment of biblical prophecy in our day. And more than anything, it's not just a matter of calling Israel back to faithfulness, it's a matter of calling our own hearts back to faithfulness to God, to be bold, to reclaim that fire that we had when we first came to know him. And I understand that this is a heavy message. It's mostly negative. I could spend a lot of time talking about the positive things, but right now it's so important that we as the church recognize the satanic storm that's flooding the earth and recognize that this is to fulfill the words of the prophets, to lift up our heads and recognize that these signs, as painful as they are, they're signs of his soon return. It's time to get our own lives in order, our own heart in order. Amen? Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. You're always faithful. We thank you that those of us that are Gentiles, former pagans, without God, without hope in the earth, that you opened our eyes. You made us your own. We ask that we, as the foolish and the weak, that we would be bold, that we would proclaim your goodness, your faithfulness unto the ends of the earth, that we would truly be faithful ambassadors. And most of all, Lord, that we would clean up our own lives, clean up our own hearts in order that we could stand firm in the midst of the storms that are already here and that are coming. Give us your heart, Lord. We thank you for these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.